Father, we come before you. We, we know that you have provided for us means and ways to know what is taking place throughout the world. I would ask that you would help us to be discerning because there are truly a lot of misinformation and disinformation. What is truthful? What is not? What is a lie? We would ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom beyond our years. But I also pray that you would help us to remain focused on the prize, the goal of our salvation, being re, re, excuse me, being united, not reunited with you. And, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be fruitful in our sharing and explaining to others what your word says, the gift of salvation, what is necessary to be saved, and what pitfalls are ahead. Help us to be educated. Help us to be watchful, just like your word says. As we go through this book, this epistle that Paul wrote, maybe one of his first, we would ask that, Lord, you would fill us full of information, knowledge, and then with that knowledge, the wisdom that is necessary, when to share, when to open our mouths, and when to be silent, as Ecclesiastes 3 has told us. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might do your will here on this earth while we wait to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 17 years after the conversion of Paul, he set out on his third missionary journey to go to a series of churches that had been established on his previous missionary journeys. And there was Paul, and there was Barnabas, and John Mark, and Sopater, and a few others that were along with him. Luke traveled with him as well. And they went to all of these different churches, and they weren't able to stay a, a long period of time. And sometimes Paul would go to the, the Thessalonica church. He was able to stay there about three weeks the first time he went, and then there was a church established. And, of course, there were problems there in that city. From the Jews who were there, they greatly opposed Paul when he'd go into the synagogue. They didn't like what he had to say because it's like something else. It's something new, but it's God himself that is communicating this, but there were a lot of Greeks, proselyte, uh, proselyte Gentiles, that heard this message, and they wanted to hear more, and they responded positively. But Paul had to leave because the persecution was getting so heavy, and when he did leave, he went off to Berea. Now, the area that this missionary journey is going, this is his second missionary journey that we're going to be dealing with here. And as he travels, he traveled 2,700 miles. 1,400 of those miles were in a boat. And the rest of the miles were on foot or on a donkey or on some other type of transportation. But he traveled around the known world at that time just to get the gospel out. And if you would turn to your Bibles in Acts chapter 17, I want to recall some of this missionary journey that he was on here. And it begins in verse 1. It says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's where we get the three weeks from. Explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters 
from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. These, these are the religious leaders of the city. They're going out and getting some thugs and bringing them to beat up Paul and Silas. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So most of the Jews did not respond to the gospel, but a large number of Greeks did, and not a few prominent women, and it really made the Jews angry. And You know, the ones that God called are the ones that were most vociferously against the gospel going out. And so this trouble from the Jews in Thessalonica caused him to head out towards Berea. Now, if you were to look at a map, if you know where uh, the Mediterranean Sea is and you have Israel that is on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea and if you go up, you have Syria as you're looking at a map a little to the right, Golan Heights area and Damascus is over there. And if you go to the left, you have Lebanon and you keep on going up, you have Antioch, which is up there and then it stretches out into Turkey. And Ephesus is in Turkey, and that's where Paul went on his first missionary journey. And he continued to the end of Turkey. And once he got to the end of Turkey, he went up to what is now known as Bulgaria. And modern day, today we have Macedonia, and we also have Albania. And right below that is Greece. And in Greece, that is where Thessalonica is, and that's where Berea was the the two cities back in those ancient times. And so he went all the way to Greece, 2,700 miles to get there to make sure the gospel was going out. And we know that the Bereans, maybe you, this is why uh, the men studying the past, we've called it the Berean brothers. For they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. And and they accepted the word with eagerness. They wanted to know what was going on or what was going on as far as this uh, prophecy about Jesus and him being the Christ. And so the Bereans were more noble. The word in the Greek is Eugene. They were Eugene. Uh, Eugene is a name that we give to men, boys, And it means being born well or well-bred or born into aristocracy. That's what Eugene means. And so these Bereans were noble or Eugene, and they were eager and receptive to the word of God. They honestly examined the scriptures in the Old Testament to check the truthfulness of Paul's teaching. Most of the time when you go out and witness, people don't want to examine truthfully what the scripture has to say, especially members of the cults. Uh, They are instructed not to listen to anybody who is not part of the cult, especially Jehovah Witnesses. They tell them, do not read anything that contradicts the teaching of the Watchtower organization. You need to stay away from that. And they keep them busy all week long, so they really don't have a lot of time. But the Bereans were interested. They wanted to check it out. 
Now, they did not turn Paul over to the agitators that were in Thessalonica. And, and so that means, oh, wow, this, these guys are good, the people who are in Berea, because they went to Berea looking for Paul and Silas. And then later on in Acts chapter 20, you have Sopater, a Berean who assisted Paul in his missionary journey when he went back to Macedonia after a plot to take his life when he was going to head towards Syria. And, and so there are a lot of positive things to say about the Bereans. And also the Philippians, they were the only ones that provided help for Paul when he was in Thessalonica, and they did it a couple of times. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set up for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And that's the same thing that we need to do today and we are doing as a church. We send money to different missionary organizations, different different places where it will work uh, to the benefit. And even the uh, pregnancy care center, you know, saving lives, we send money over there. And so that is what we are continuing, what was begun uh, in the New Testament church. Now, the theme of the book, chiefly is there is exhortations and counsels and reminders that Paul delivers. But there's also this idea that Jesus is coming back, the future advent or eschatology. First Thessalonians 1.10 deals with the tribulation. Uh, chapter 4 deals with the rapture and the second coming of Christ. So they, these things are important, especially with what is going on in the world today. We just want to be aware. And I'll be covering... Not exhaustively the idea of eschatology, but I'm going to remind us of what it is we believe at the church here, what is taught in Christendom in general, and what we can expect for the future. So going on here, the missionary journey that Paul was on, he founded this church. Uh, like I said, after only three weeks, he was in prison in Philippi, miraculously freed, and then he went to Thessalonica and, of course, we know that Paul's life was filled with difficulty because of the uh, mission that he was involved in. So it goes on. Let's see, did I read verse 1? Yes. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. And they were laboring together in thanksgiving and in prayer to God for the Thessalonica church. It says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase that he has here are these three things, faith, love, and hope. He mentions these in a few different places. First Corinthians thirteen thirteen, same author. He says, now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And in Colossians, the book we are just in, in ch chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 6, it says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith, in Christ Jesus and your love you have for the saints, the faith and love that spring from hope that is stored up in, for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. And so faith, hope, and love. Now work is produced by faith. And this 
This means, and this is referring back to the passage we just read, verse 3. It's a work that it, it's pleasant and stimulating, where you're deciding to work for Jesus and doing his will, and it's not burdensome. You want to do it because he's placed it in your heart. You go, you know, this is, this is something that's good. I can assist, whether it's children or cleaning or whatever it may be, the, the gospel going out, evangelism. And it's something you want to do, you're motivated to do. Then there's the labor prompted by love. This word is different in the Greek. It is kopos. And it means strenuous and sweat producing. You work for Jesus and it's going to cost you some sweat. Sweat equity, so to speak. It is going to be difficult. It is going to be hard. I believe this would refer to both physically and emotionally. It will be difficult. You know, we just saw that the Jews hired some thugs to go get Paul and Silas and they wanted to rough them up a little bit. Same thing, not exactly the same thing, but similar things like this happen inside the Christian church. I really need to take that back. There's one book by Gene Edwards where he recorded several different things and it's how to prevent a church split. And he he talked about how some people in the leadership just had it in for the pastor and how the pastor would have it in for some of the elders and they would just go to war with each other and it'd be over things like and I've mentioned this to you before the things like the roof or the color of carpet you know or coffee decaf or espresso whatever it might be just ridiculous arguments and we've even had uh, uh, arguments here in the church I did uh, at one time with one person about setting up chairs it's not my job to set up chairs it's somebody else's job and I ought not to do it it's like chairs you know why why are we arguing about this stuff it's nobody's job it's just something that has to be done so christians are fallen individuals and we get involved in these arguments as well but it's going to be difficult for the person who does because your faith is going to be tested a little bit like why are we going back and forth like this this is difficult and it causes emotional stress and the actual laboring the physical stress whether you're putting up a church or getting ready for an event it can be sweat producing Then uh, the traveling on the missionary adventures, that's definitely strenuous and sweat producing according to the Acts, the book of Acts that Luke records for us and everything that Paul and the apostles went through and the missionaries. Now, endurance or patience is inspired by hope. Now, this is long-suffering endurance and is needed not only to survive hard times but to triumph through them. And this is what Paul is saying The church in Thessalonica has. They're just persevering. They just keep on going. They they do not shrink back from what is in front of them. So this idea of faith. Now we're going to tackle faith a little bit here. Faith defined is a confident belief in the truth, value, or trustworthiness of a person, an idea, or a thing. And I don't believe it's blind faith that we have. Many people think that Christians have blind faith. I believed uh, originally because I was listening to a prophecy program when I was about 20 or 21. And I would listen to it every weekend when I traveled from Chula Vista to Palm Springs. And it was a a cult that was doing it, uh, Herbert Darby Armstrong. But he was talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. I just became fascinated. And I would make sure I left so I could hear the message over the radio. And I was just fascinated by the prophecies that were out there before I was a believer. I heard that. And 
I, I didn't just accept Christ blindly, so to speak. I heard that there was this tribulation that was to come. And unless you have Christ, you're going to go through the tribulation if you're here when it begins. Otherwise, you'll die and be judged. And, and so I had some fear. Now, there was a little bit of fear, but I also liked what was going to take place in the future. You know, like, I, I need to know about this stuff. And doing so, I accepted the Lord partially out of fear. I didn't want to be judged. I didn't want to go to hell. And partially out of, I wanted to find out more about this. I wanted to be inspired by what is here. And the Lord led me on that path, and I got saved down in Palm Desert by some guy on the radio. But believing or having faith, it, it doesn't necessarily rest on logical proof or material evidence, but it is buttressed by it. And once I became a believer, once I found out all this stuff, I checked to see if the prophecies were true. I did my own investigation. I started digging, and over the years, I continued to do it. I go back and I look. Is this true? Is this not true? One of the things I recently went back and looked up was, uh, and it was dealing with eschatology because I'm, I'm teaching the book of Revelation to the youth. And so there are those uh, who talk about the Johnny-come-lately doctrine of the rapture of the church, and it was never taught in the first century. And I went back in my books, and I found where the references were, where it was taught in the first century and in the second century. And, and so that's a fallacy that is out there, and that's a major one that is used to say there is no rapture. And, and we go back and we get this evidence, and it buttresses our faith. Now, originally, it's like saved by fire, saved by grace. It doesn't matter. You get saved. But going beyond that, you need to be a disciple. And that faith, that trust in Jesus, causes us to want to search it out. And faith is also defined as a loyalty or an allegiance to a person or a thing, fidelity to a promise. And you hold on to it. And the theological uh, virtue defined as a secure belief in God and a trusting acceptance of God's will, all of those things define what faith is, both the secular de definition and also the theological definition according to biblical theology. And so we have faith. I believe Jesus is coming back. I believe he's going to judge the world. I am firmly convinced. I don't have any doubt with that because all the years that I've spent investigating this to see if it's true. Now, biblical faith, again, is to see and believe. And, and, and we want to make sure that we're not believing in foolishness and the only way to combat that is to be in the word we want to make sure we're not ignorant in our faith faith can be used as a noun we belong to the faith the faith which is handed down to the saints the church so to speak and that's the biblical faith that we hold on to now john in chapter 20 verse 29 then jesus told him because you have seen me you have believed but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed and that's referring to all of you that refers to me we haven't seen jesus by the way i, I just saw a picture that is based on uh, the hereditary characteristics of the people that were in the land of canaan they've come up with a picture of what jesus looks like and it was just in the news and I looked at that, and I will tell you this. You know who he looks like if you have seen at least the picture they came up with. The picture looks like the Jesus of the series, The Chosen. That's what he looks like in the picture that they came up with. And it was like, wow, that, that's pretty interesting how um, they came up with that picture. Now, is it actually a, a, 
uh, drawing of Jesus? No, I don't think it is. But it was interesting also that they showed him with short hair and not long hair and a beard, but the beard wasn't very long. Now, the beard could have been longer back then. That was one of the things men had back then was long beards. That's what they operated with. They could tie them back or whatever, especially the the Jewish leaders. They would have longer beards. Maybe the people who were involved in trades didn't. But it's this idea that men had the short hair back then. Now, today, that's not going to be the case. But that's one of the cultural things that you can look into, and it can actually buttress your faith. And we want to make sure that we believe in Jesus. We don't have a picture of him, but we know who he is by the description given to us in the word. Now, Second Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And this is where faith is used as a noun. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So we're to examine ourselves. Are you in the faith? How do you know you're in the faith? In our country, in our culture, we have the altar calls where people come forward. Some people in Christendom think those are the worst things that could ever happen. Because it really is not a true confession of faith. Some people it is, but many people it's not. And they don't fold in. They don't become disciples. They they don't pursue Christ. They just say, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to accept Jesus. And they say they're a Christian, and, and that's the end of it. But we're supposed to test ourselves. Have you followed Christ all your life? Are you in the faith all your Christian life? Have you not turned away? Even if you have doubts, have you worked through the doubts? And doubt is part of faith. And we need to make sure that we go through those valleys of testing our faith and that we come out the other side. If you've done all that and you continue and you confess Christ and he is Lord, then you're in the faith. But if you've denied the faith, if you've turned away, if you've added something to the gospel, if there's works that are there, that's not the biblical faith. They're turning away. People are in the cults. They have turned away. Many have apostatized. Some of the people I've witnessed to in the cults, they say, oh, yeah, I went to a Christian church before, but now I found the truth. They have apostatized. They have left the faith that has been handed down to the saints. So faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So faith, it elicits or it brings forth works. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. Once we have faith, we're going to do the works. So you examine yourself, say, what kind of works do I have? What am I doing? Now, this, if, if the salvation is not contingent on this. But the works are evidence, like the book of James talks about. It's evidence that you or I are saved. Secondly, faith elicits or it brings forth obedience. Now, if I asked you to raise your hands, have you ever been disobedient following Christ? I would raise two hands. I said, yeah, I have been disobedient and thank God for his grace. That's why I love that song, the last song we just sang. It's his unmerited favor. And if you feel like you're away from God, that things aren't just right, the first thing that caused us to be away from God or separated from him was our sin. The same thing that does that now is our sin, even if we believe. And so we need to cry out to God, even grieve over our sin. And he will restore us and he will draw near to us if we draw near to him. Thirdly, our faith encourages others. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 12 says that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
And so when you're stepping out and you're doing something for the Lord, other people get encouraged by that. They go, you know, maybe I can do that. That's why we need to be working. If we're solid in the faith, we're working for the Lord. We're doing something for him. We're not just basking in the salvation that we have. And faith declares us righteous. And it's not by our works that we are declared righteous. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so God just says, if you have hope in me, you have faith to believe, then that faith will bring to you, or it's imputed to you, righteousness. God declares that we are righteous or we are in good standing. That's also being justified before God. It's like a a judge saying, you are not guilty, or you are guilty, but you are forgiven. You are pardoned for this error which is there. And of course, we know it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us we are not saved by works of any kind. Fifthly, faith elicits or it brings forth confidence. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, I already read that to you. Uh, and it's a certain confidence that comes when we are next to Christ all the time. We can be sure and certain that we are indeed saved. And sixth, faith is not established through earthly wisdom. We know that Corinthians talks about worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And godly wisdom is foolishness to the world. And worldly wisdom is foolishness to God. And the two will never meet. But faith is not established by doing investigation. Faith is established by your hope being placed in Jesus Christ. And that produces the faith which ends up having the works which is defined as love. So love is the end of it, but the most important thing is love, and it begins with hope. And faith... Uh, we are to live by faith, not by sight. So uh, like in our world situation right now, let's, let's just postulate for a minute. It's going to get really bad. Let, let's just say it's really bad. Let's say Russia gets upset. NATO is uh, providing arms. Nuclear bombs go off. One comes over the poles towards the United States, maybe around Minnesota or Ohio or someplace like that. And we go, what is going on with this? And the world all shuts down. The economy goes bad. Hopefully you have some food. The power goes down. There's a, a nuclear bomb, uh, EMP, that goes off over the United States. The higher it is, like they, I just heard yesterday, if it's 300 miles over the United States and it blows up, it wipes out the entire United States electrical grid and it can take months or years to get back. What was I listening to? I have no idea, but I remember hearing that. Say it gets really bad. All we have to do is sit back and go and say, the Lord knows. I'm just going to continue on here. We're never promised that it would be easy here in this life. For most of the people on the planet Earth, it has not been easy. And for us, we are so blessed it has been easy, but there are problems which are coming. Now, do I think it's going to get that bad? I have no idea. I'm praying it doesn't. I'm praying everything is good. I'm praying that my grandkids have a prosperous life. I pray that uh, wiser heads do prevail. All of that I'm praying for. And, And the Lord can grant that. But we know that there's a time in the future it is going to get that bad. Are we living in that time? Or is it the next generation? have no idea. We just have to wait and see. I don't know if I told you, but somebody texted me and they said, 
is this Ezekiel 38 that's taking place with Russia going in? And I simply said, it's too early to tell. We, we don't know what's going on with that. I think I communicated that to you as well. Now, faith was designed to increase. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So we are to add grace to grace and faith to faith. We are not to be stagnant. We are not to do nothing. Again, I I just want to make sure you guys understand salvation is not contingent on those works. We're simply being obedient to do those works because of the faith we possess. And number 10 here, we cannot please God without faith. So he wants us to trust in him, be certain and be sure in him, no matter how bad it gets. Have you ever gotten to a point where you, you trust in Christ and you're walking your walk and you sin and then you sin again? And then you're just not getting it right. And it seems like there's four or five things that come in a row where you just blow it, whether it's with your speech or your actions. And you just say, am I even saved? Well, have you called out to Christ to save you? Are you turning to him to ask for forgiveness? Are you continuing on the path? A righteous man falls how many times and gets back up? Do you guys know? Seven times. That's right. Seven times. After that? You're going, no. After that, it doesn't matter. It's the same walk. It could be 700 or 7,000 times. That's the beauty of the grace of God. It changes everything. And it's easy for us to get depressed and we get severed in our relationship from God the Father. But he says, just ask me for forgiveness. Draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. And it has to be in a spirit of humility. And even, like I previously said, Grief over your sins, being able to weep over your own personal sin, as well as the sin of the world, as well as sin of others that you know. And if you call out to the Holy Spirit, he will meet you at some point, maybe not instantly, but he'll meet you and allow you to experience that. And when you walk through that valley, when you emerge out of the other side, you know that you have a closeness with Christ that nobody can sever. But you have to walk through that. But the world is contrary to that. The world is all about pride, lifting everybody up, accomplishing things. And the Lord says, no, the greatest in God's kingdom is a servant of all. And that's what we want to emulate. So uh, going on here, the application. Through faith, we are justified, sanctified, glorified. Justified means being declared right. Sanctified means by faith we are set apart for works of service that God has called us to. And we are also positionally put in a place where he says we belong to him. And glorified, that is where we are going to end up. I was listening to a audiobook by Dr. Ron Rhodes on eschatology. And he was talking about how we're going to be glorified in the bodies that we're going to receive and how wonderful they're going to be. We will never get tired, he said in the book. And, and I think scripture bears that out. So whatever you're doing, you will never say, I'm so tired. I got to sit down and rest. It will never happen to you. You will never have to sleep again. I, I think that was one of the God's ways to limit wickedness is he caused us to have to sleep. Imagine if we didn't have to sleep, all kinds of bad things we'd get involved in. 
there are a few people around the world they've done studies on, they don't need any sleep. And why? I don't know, but I think they probably die early. The, the body is set up where we have to sleep, but our new bodies, we're not going to have to sleep. We're not going to have to rest. We won't even have to eat, but we will eat. And I can't imagine what the food is going to taste like. <clears throat> think about the most flavorful food you can possibly imagine. Now, you know I like donuts. I also like steak. <clears throat> There's so many. I like spaghetti, you know. All of those taste buds just kind of fire off if I'm hungry and I want one of those things. The food that we get into heaven, you can probably savor one bite for about a century and then move on to the next thing. It's going to be so good up there, and our bodies will be able to receive that. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to have food to eat that I'm sure we just can't imagine. Faith also produces hope and joy, or faith, I should say, buttresses the hope because faith comes out of hope, joy, peace, confidence, and boldness, all of these things. People who are bold for Christ, it's because of the faith they have, where they've placed their hope, which is in Jesus Christ, and they act accordingly. And by faith, we as believers, we stand, we live, we walk, we overcome the world, we resist and overcome the devil, all because of our faith. And as saints, we are exhorted to be sincere in our faith, abound in faith, continue in faith, be strong in faith, stand in faith, hold with a good conscience to our faith, and pray for the increase of faith. All of these things. Faith is hugely important. Some people discount a little bit, but... Back in verse 3, it says, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. And so we have these other things here, love. You know the four words of love in the Greek. You have agape, you have eros, you have phileo, and you have storge. I'm sure you know this. The agape is a sacrificial, unconditional love. You love in spite of what's happening to you. Phileo is a brotherly love, Church of Philadelphia. Eros is a a sexual love or a sense of being in love. You have the sense of euphoria. You feel love, so to speak. And then there's storge, which is a love that a parent has for his children and children have for the parents. Those four words are love. The one that's being used here is the sacrificial or unconditional love. And that's what we have. We're prompted by the love because of our faith that is given to us because we hold on to hope. Now, hope, endurance inspired by hope is what it says there. A synonym for endurance is persistence, perseverance, patience, resolution, stamina. You have this hope and you hold on to it. I'm going to tell you a story. Somebody who persevered, just kept on going forward. His name is Albert. Albert was a native Chicagoan. He left high school after his sophomore year to join the World War I Red Cross Ambulance Corps. Right after high school, that's where he went. The war ended before his unit was sent overseas with Albert returning home to earn a living as a musician and later selling paper cups. Now, he was doing things to try to improve himself, if you go into the details of his story. And in 1939, he became the exclusive distributor for the multi-mixer. It was a milkshake machine that mixed milkshakes. If you go over to DQ, they probably have something that is the next generation of that. 
He was looking more to advance himself, and he would make several stops at all these different restaurants. And, and he went to this one particular store that was owned by two brothers, Dick and Mac. And Dick and Mac, they had this little restaurant that provided a 15-cent hamburger, french fries, and a shake. 15 cents. Can you imagine? 15-cent hamburger today. Well, he visited a couple of times to their little restaurant in San Bernardino. Real close to us here. He later instructed the brothers how they could expand their restaurant to several locations and had a restaurant in 1954, which led uh, this guy to becoming, uh, Albert, to becoming an agent for the restaurant, the two brothers, where they said, you know, we can expand this out. We can make a little French franchise out of this. And in 1955, they were able to open their first restaurant just east of the Mississippi. And this guy just kept on pounding the pavement, doing what he could. First, it was cups he was selling, and then it was milkshake machines. And he was helping with the Red Cross before that, right out of high school. He was kind of motivated. Well, Albert ended up buying out the two brothers, Dick and Mac, for $2.7 million in 1961. You know Albert as Ray Albert Kroc, who has McDonald's, that now sells almost $5 billion a year in hamburgers. I used to work for Mr. Kroc. I took care of his McDonald's up on Kearney Mesa and he would be at his window and look outside the window and tell me to do things, call up the manager and say, he needs to do this or do that over there. I never met the man personally, but he persevered. He kept on going with this and and he had this hope that he would persevere. Now, this is a secular story. Let me give you two biblical stories and it's going to take a couple of minutes here. So we are going to receive communion. That is going to happen. Just bear with me here. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there was a woman who was married to a man who was in the company of the prophets and her husband died and the creditors that he owed money to came to take her two sons because of the debt that was owed and he was going to make them slaves. And because of this, she went to the prophet Elisha and said, you know, this is not going to be good. How can we correct this? He goes, well, what do you have? And he goes, she said, I have this little thing of oil. He goes, I want you to go to all your neighbors and I want you to get these um, uh, jars, empty jars, and get as many as you can and fill up your house with them. And then once you take that little cup of oil that you have, I want you to pour it in there and keep on filling until all of them are filled up. And so she did that. She got them all, locked the door, went inside, her and her son. She started pouring, and it didn't stop flowing once she turned it over and filled up all the jars in her house. She goes, give me another jar. And the son said, we don't have any more. They were just all filled up. There would have been probably hundreds of gallons of oil. And then Elisha said, now go sell that oil, pay off the debt, and you can have your sons back. She trusted that the Lord knew of her need. She went to the prophet and said, what am I supposed to do here? And, and he directed her. The same guy, Elijah, he had a servant named Gehazi. And Gehazi and Elijah would go to this one particular town. This Shunammite woman was there. She had an elderly husband, which is implied from the text that she was younger. And she decided to set up a place for Elisha whenever he visited until she put up a little bed, a table, a a lamp for him and a chair and all that was there for him and Gehazi. And so whenever he came to town, he would stay there. And 
it was Elisha that was saying to Gehazi, hey, what should we do for her? Look how nice she's been for us. And so he asked her, what can I do? She goes, you know, I have a house among my people. I'm satisfied. And then Gehazi says, but she doesn't have a son and her husband is old. And so Elisha turns to her, the Shunammite woman, and says, this time next year, you're going to have a child. And she, she said, don't lie to me. Don't give me that false hope. He went away, came back, had a child, came back. Well, she has this son, and this son, he, one day, he was uh, out in the field with his father, and he goes, my head, my head. The father took uh, the son to the mother, the Shunanite woman, and she held him, and by noontime, he was dead. So she headed off to go see Elisha, and when Elisha saw her coming in the distance, she, he sent Gehazi, go, find out what's wrong. Here comes the Shunammite woman. And he asked the Shunammite woman, is there anything wrong? She goes, no, everything's okay. Everything's fine. Then she got to Elisha. She clung onto his legs and says, you need to help me explain the story of what's going on. He immediately, Elisha sent Gehazi, said, take my staff, put that staff on the child, and that child should recover. Well, the child didn't recover. Gehazi came back because he was heading there as well, Elisha, with the Shunammite woman, came out and said, it's not happening. Nothing's going on here. And so he went into the room and shut the door behind him, just him and the boy. He laid on the boy face to face, nose to nose, hands to hands, just laid on him. The boy's body got warm. He stepped off for a moment. He came back. He did it a second time. I'm sure he's praying the whole time. And the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes and he was better. And the mother got back her son. Now she trusted in the prophet, the messenger, but also in God. She had this hope that something could be done. Otherwise she never would have gone to Elijah. If you go through something like that where you don't know what's going to go on, your health starts to fail, something economically takes place, the country just goes downhill from here, we, we just trust. We want to be like these people. Now, <clears throat> we're going to receive communion here. And as we're receiving communion, maybe you're doubting in some areas. Just go back to the hope that you originally had. Don't let yourself get sidetracked. Now, you know the routine here. We're putting our faith, trust, and hope in Jesus Christ. And as we receive the communion cup here, we want to make sure we're reflecting on that. We're placing our trust and hope in Jesus every single day. And we want to make sure we're not um, skirting that responsibility to always focus on him. So you know the routine. You come up the middle. You go down the sides. And Pat, I'm going to ask you to come up and pray again over this. <clears throat> but we're going to, I'm going to play a song. And as that song is being played, once it starts being played, go ahead and feel free to come up. And we can take the lights down in the center of the sanctuary. And just call out to God. Say, God, maybe I'm not going through a problem where I need to have extra hope and faith right now. But I know the time will be coming. And, I, I, and you can say, I pray that you would just strengthen me. Give me the ability to really trust in you at that time. So let's go ahead and sing.